Well, good morning. Uh, welcome to Northridge. Glad that you guys are here. Uh, and seriously, thank you for braving the cold because I know when I walked out in the garage, I was like, oh, no. Mm-mm. No, you got to be kidding me, right? And so thanks for being here. Thanks for jumping in with us. Uh, for those of you who are here for a first-time guest, your first-time guest with us here at Northridge, welcome. We're glad that you guys are here. Thanks for checking us out. We, we don't take it lightly that you have given up some of your time to spend with us. And so thanks for doing that. Um, and I just want to mention uh, this series, I was reminded of it just literally two minutes ago. This whole series, I know we talk about important stuff like every Sunday. We sing about important stuff. We have important relationships every single week. But this series, uh, we're talking about the very thing that can solve everything for you. Everything. No matter what problems you're going through, no matter what your struggles are, no matter what you're dealing with, no matter what it is, The soul, even though it's under the surface, as this series is talking about, your soul can solve every problem. It doesn't mean that it'll take your problems away, just so that we're very clear. Because a lot of people are like, ah, I'm going to give my life to Jesus, everything's good. No. What it does is it will take care of getting you through those and give you peace and joy and strength and guidance and clarity in those problems. And it also make the joys even greater. And so I hope that you are just um, digging in with us and and taking to heart some of these things about your soul. Um, So we are in this uh, series called Under the Surface. And um, and just uh, last week, we talked about the fact that your soul was made to need God. I don't know if you've ever thought about that or have known that before, but your soul was made to need God. It absolutely is created to need God, just like you were created to need air or food. Your soul is created to need God. And today we're going to talk about another thing that your soul needs. And it's very similar, but it's going to be in a completely different way. And it's the fact that your soul needs a center. That your soul needs an, an anchor. It needs a reference point. It needs something to orbit around. It needs something to worship. Your soul was made to worship something. And what your soul worships determines everything about your life. Literally everything about your life. And so today we're going to talk about how we need to keep the soul centered. Now, before we get into the the fact that the soul needs a center, I want to jump into another question that maybe you've never asked, but it's really important because it's one of the most important principles of life as we follow Christ. And, uh, and, and, and I want to get into this by using a story about Jesus. Uh, in this story, Jesus is teaching several thousand people. Uh, the Bible sets it up that way. We know the context. He's outside and there's all these people. He starts teaching uh, to this small group and his disciples, of course, are there, the 12 disciples. But he starts teaching and then people just start gathering. They just start showing up in droves. And so now there's like several thousand people listening to Jesus speak. And all of a sudden, this guy interrupts Jesus right in the middle of his teaching. He just stands up and he he interrupts Jesus with a question. And so Jesus is going to have to respond to this guy. And as a result, he has to kind of take this little side step over in his teaching. And he has to tell everybody a different story than what he was telling. 
And it's very interesting what happened. So I want to read this because, and the reason I'm bringing this out is because I want you to understand that the only one in charge of your soul, the only way your soul is going to be centered is if you do it. And you're going to see this point in this um, story. So let's read it. Jesus is teaching and this guy interrupts him. All right. Luke chapter 12, starting with verse 13. So Jesus is teaching, then someone called from the crowd, teacher, please tell my brother to divide our father's estate with me. It's kind of a strange interruption, right? Command or question. Jesus replied, friend, who made me a judge over you to decide such things as that? Then he said, beware, guard against every kind of greed. Life is not measured by how much you own. Then he told them a story. Jesus likes to tell stories. I don't know if you've noticed that. He makes a point with stories a lot. So he tells them this story. A rich man had a fertile farm that produced fine crops. And he said to himself, what should I do? I, have room. I don't have room for all my crops. Then he said, I know. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. Then I'll have room enough to store all my wheat and other goods. And I'll sit back and say to myself, my friend, you have enough stored away for years to come. Now take it easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. Sit in your recliner. Okay, that doesn't say that in there. Get your 60-inch TV, right? That's what he's thinking. But God said to him, you fool, you will die this very night. Then who will get everything you worked for? Yes, a person is a fool to store up earthly wealth, but not have a rich relationship with God. Then turning to his disciples, Jesus said, that is why I tell you not to worry about everyday life, whether you have enough food to eat or enough clothes to wear, for life is more than food and your body more than clothing. So this is a very interesting dynamic, and, and the honest truth is, if you noticed in that story, we could spend like several sermons. I could make a series out of this one story, right? We could talk about forgiveness and how these two brothers, all that would need, they would need to solve their issue over the argument that they're having over their father's estate is to set aside their selfishness and their greed and to forgive each other. That's all, we, all that is needed there. But we're not going to talk about that. Or we could talk about the fact that the younger brother had intense amount of greed, didn't he? So greedy, in fact, that he was willing to interrupt the most powerful teacher in the history of teaching, Jesus himself, in order to tell Jesus, you need to tell my brother to solve the problem. He's an idiot, right? Tell him to divide my father's estate with me. Right? And he interrupts Jesus because of his intense greed. We're not going to talk about that. We could also talk about the fact that this passage shares with us that we cannot put our hope and trust in things of this world, that they will pass away, and that life and our soul is all that matters. We could talk about that, but we're not going to talk about that. What I do want to focus on is one verse in that story, one thing that Jesus says. Go back to verse 20. This is what it says. But God said to him, you fool, you will die this very night. Then who will get everything you worked for? 
Now, true, this passage says that he's going to die this very night. So does that mean he's physically going to die? Yes, it does. That's, that literally means he's physically going to pass away. He's no longer going to be on the earth. But we need to dig a little deeper to understand what Jesus is actually saying there. Because it's a little bit more intense, it's a little bit deeper, it's a little bit more important than just he's going to die. And you say, well, dying is pretty intense and pretty important. That's true. But there's something even deeper going on here. If you look at the original Greek word, you guys love it when I bring out the original Greek word, right? Because you like learn words that you've never really wanted to know. You're like, I have a hard time enough with English, right? But the original Greek word, when they wrote this, it was written in Greek. And so when they're recording Jesus, they wrote down this Greek word that we translate to the word die. But the word is apoteo. It sounds like a potato, but it's not, right? It's apoteo. And and if you literally translate this word, what this word means, because I don't know about you, but I don't use Greek all that often, right? But if you translate this word, I'm going to put it up on the screen. This is the definition. It means to ask back, to demand back, or to exact something due. Now, we use the word die here, which is correct in that he is going to die. But what Jesus was saying to everybody, the thousands of people, and he's saying to you and I is, this man's soul is now due. That's a little bit more intense than just you're dying. Do you catch the gravity of this? What Jesus is saying is, the soul is not yours, it's mine, and I'm calling it due tonight. It's now due. It's kind of like a spiritual transaction. If you think of a loan where, where all of a sudden the bank or, or loan person or whatever says, now you're going to need to pay it all back in full today. That's what Jesus is saying. God is saying, your soul is due now. So all this stuff that you've been building up and that 60-inch screen TV and the recliner that you were getting so excited about and the barns that you're going to build, they're worthless to you now completely worthless. And so I want us to understand this because it brings us up. In fact, uh, let me tell you what the King James Version, in fact, not often, but sometimes the King James Version is a really good translation. In this case, I think that they have a better translation than the one that I read to you just a minute ago. And what it says in that section is says, thy soul shall be required. Your soul is required of you. It's time to return your soul to me. Now, this brings up a really important point. It's probably one of the most important principles that you will ever learn about your walk with Christ. If you believe in Jesus, if you believe that the only way that you can have a relationship with God is through Jesus, and that's what we believe here at Northridge, if you believe that, then there's a principle, if you are following Jesus, that you must understand, that we all have to get. And that is this, that everything in life Everything you see, everything you know, everything that you are is not yours. It's God's. That includes everything. That means your house. That means your cars. That means your money in your bank account, in your savings, in your 401k, in the investment in whatever thing in the Cayman Islands that you have. Whatever it is, that would be God's. But it goes much deeper than that. Your spouse is God's. Your children never were yours to begin with. 
They aren't yours now. They won't be yours in the future. They never have been yours. They're God's. That's a hard one, but it's true. Everything is God's, and including your soul. Now, what did God do? Why do we have children? Why do we have houses? Why do we have cars? Why do we have money? Why do we have a soul? The reason is because God gave all of those things to you as to be caretakers of it for a season. Hence, you have us here on this earth being caretakers of what God has given to us, including the planet. But there is a time coming where every single one of us in here, every person on the planet, will have to answer to God this question. God will say, this is what I gave to you. Now, what did you do with it? How did you take care of it? You know when you loan something out to somebody and it comes back and it's like all beat up and scratched up, <laughs> right? And you go, dude, what did you do, <laughs> right? Or you return and this is what I always tell my kids. If you stay at somebody's house or if you, or if you use their things or whatever, and you guys are probably taught the same thing, well, you want to return it to them better than you found it, Right? Now, we, we tell our kids that all the time. And so if you stay at somebody's house, you don't leave that house without making sure that the room is clean, the bed is made, the, ship, the, the sheets, maybe you're stripped off the bed, and then you made it, then you put the laundry down, and you, you take care of all that stuff so that they don't have to do very much work when you leave their place. You leave it better than you found it. Well, what God has done with you and I is he's given us so many things, great things, including our soul. And eventually God is going to ask, what did you do with what I gave you? Now, that's a principle that we need to understand. So how we use our time, how we use our money, how we use our gift and abilities, our, our, our skills that God has given us, our family, our spouse, our children, our, our, our possessions, everything, how we use those things really matters to God. And so this principle is something that we need to understand. And so when I say that we need to have a center in our soul, that God has to be the center, the only person that can take care of that, guess what, is you. Because God gave it to you to take care of. I can't do it. I can pray for you. I can do my best to help you. Other people around can do their best to help you. But the only person who can take care of your soul is you. Because you're the steward of it. You're the caretaker. And so the soul needs a center and you're the one to take care of it. So now let's turn our attention to how do we determine if our soul is centered. Well, I want to share a passage with you. James chapter 1, verses 6 through 8 says this. It says, Be sure that your faith is in God alone. Do not waver. For a person with divided loyalty is as unsettled as a wave of the sea that is blown and tossed by the wind. Such people should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Did you notice that? Those are harsh words. True, but harsh. They should not expect to receive anything from the Lord if their soul is divided. Their loyalty is divided between God and the world, and they are unstable in everything they do. So the question I have for you, and the question you might be asking is, okay, this is serious stuff, and it is. And so the question you might be asking is, how do I know if my soul is centered on God? It's a good question, isn't it? 
I mean, if you would, if you, if you want to, if you're going to stand before God and you're going to answer, answer this question, like God's going to say, Hey, how did you do with this? And how did you do with this person and these children that I gave you and this time and this money? And how did you do with your soul? If we have to answer to that, then it's important probably for us to think, are we centered? Does our soul rest on God alone? Or am I resting on some of the other things like a paycheck or a warm house in this cold weather, right? And so how do we know that? Well, I want to give you five thoughts. And you guys know we're using the Soul Keeping book by John Ortberg to kind of do this. And he goes through five indicators, and it's just so phenomenal. I just, I had to, I had to kind of just go in this, and I didn't change any of this stuff. It's just really, really good. And he goes through five indicators that tell you when a soul is not centered on God. Okay, not when a soul is centered, but when a soul is not centered. Centered. And when I read these, it was very convicting. It was very obvious and very practical, very clear. And so I want to give you five indicators. You know when you're driving your car, right? Uh, and this happens to me a lot in this weather, right? And you kind of, you crank it, it's like, there, it's like, it, it doesn't want to go either, right? It doesn't want to do anything. But you start up the car and you're driving along and then all of a sudden that light comes on. Right? How many of you love that, by the way? When the, yeah, me, I'm like, no. This is going to be like $1,200. All right, that's immediately what I think. But that light comes on, and that light doesn't necessarily tell you what the problem is, does it? It just tells you what? That there is a problem. I am going to give you five things that is like an indicator light in your life. Five things that if this is lit up in your life, if this is true in your life, then it might point to the possibility that your soul is not centered on God and that you're trusting in other things. All right, so five indicators. Let's jump in. The first one is difficulty making a decision or making decisions. When your soul is not centered, we have a hard time deciding of where to go and what to do. We just were kind of like wave tossed by in the, in the wind by the sea, just like in that passage in James. Now, the best example I can give is Pontius Pilate in the Bible. Now, if you, don't, if you don't know who Pontius Pilate is, let me just explain that Pontius Pilate was an authority figure in Jesus' region and in his day. And so when Jesus was arrested by the religious authorities and then they were taken over to Pontius Pilate because they had no authority to crucify Jesus. And so they hand him over, Jesus over, to Pontius Pilate. And now Pontius Pilate has to make a determination. He has to make the decision as to whether or not Jesus is going to go free or if he's going to be crucified. Right? So he's in front of everybody. And what it, the problem is, is Pontius Pilate has a really hard time making the decision. I don't, you, I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but Pontius Pilate does a whole bunch of things to try to get out of making this decision. Have you ever done that? When you're like, both parts of the decision are difficult, and so you're just like, I'm just going to let somebody else make that decision. It's kind of like, a, you know, tag your it kind of a thing, right? And so this is what Pontius Pilate is trying to do. He's, probably, he's trying to pass this decision off onto somebody else. So first what he does is he talks to Jesus and he tries to get Jesus to say something that's either going to incriminate himself or free himself. So that Pontius Pilate can say, oh, see, Jesus said this, and so we can set him free. Or Jesus said this, so yep, we're going to crucify him. But Jesus doesn't say anything. <laughs> Jesus is a little smarter than Pontius Pilate, by the way. So he doesn't say anything. So then Pontius Pilate goes to the religious leaders and he, and he starts questioning them. And he's like, he's trying to find out like, what do you have against this guy? Because I don't find anything wrong in him at all. 
And so he grills the religious leaders. And what he's trying to do, he's just trying to find something to help them change their minds so that they can say, you know what, let's just pass off on this thing. We can let Jesus go and it's okay. He's just trying to not have to make the decision. And he does several other things. But then finally, I don't know if you remember this, but then finally Pontius Pilate, he's at the end of all of his options. And so he says, oh wait, I know, I've got it. I'm gonna bring one of the worst criminals out and, and, and I'm going to ask which one they want me to free, this guy Barabbas or Jesus. And, and he's thinking, I'm sure, oh, they're going to they're gonna say Jesus because this guy Barabbas, he's bad. Everybody knows what he's done. We need to keep him locked up. And so he goes and he presents Barabbas and Jesus, this notorious criminal and sinner who's hurt people in the community badly, and Jesus who hasn't done anything wrong. And he says, which one of these men do you want me to release to you, and which one is going to be crucified? And they say, give us Barabbas, crucify Jesus. And so Pontius Pilate I don't know if you remember the last thing that he does is he stands in front of the entire crowd and he says, I wash my hands of this. We will crucify Jesus, but this man's blood is not on my hands. But the truth is, Pontius Pilate knows it is. He's trying to make himself feel better. It's not going to be better for him. Why did he have such a hard time making that decision? When he knew what was right, but he did what was wrong. You know why? It was not anything else other than a soul problem. His soul was divided. In fact, I would encourage you, just to give you some understanding of this, today, sometime today, go back and read Matthew chapter 27. Just read that one chapter. It'll take you like five minutes, maybe even less. Read Matthew chapter 27. It's the account of where Pontius Pilate does all this stuff with Jesus. And just see how much he struggles. You can tell even reading it. Pontius Pilate wants to do the right thing. He wants to free Jesus, but he doesn't. And it's because his soul is divided. Second indicator, weakness and vulnerability. When we are not centered, when our soul is not centered, then we lack the conviction, the strength, and the courage to do what we know we need to do. And all of a sudden, everybody else becomes an enemy. They become somebody that's, that's going to attack us. And, and we have a really hard time going through life and doing what God wants us to do. I don't know about you, but when you get scared, right, how many of you freeze up? Right? You just freeze up. Like if, I, if all of a sudden I just, I was able to do this, transport us out to one of the highest, tallest bridges in the world, right? Right in the middle. And when I put you on the edge and I said, hey, how's everybody doing? Some of you would be like, whoa, this is awesome. Some of you would be in the fetal position immediately, right? Because you'd just be so scared. Well, a soul that is not centered on God is constantly weak and vulnerable. And it feels like it's under attack from the darkness. Uh, let me try to give you an example of this. Uh, a couple of months ago, I took my kids hiking to Tower Hill State Park. I'd never been there before. And so it was a really cool little, it's a pretty small state park, but it's great hiking. And uh, there's this massive drop-off, this huge cliff, where this guy built a, a little tower and all that kind of stuff. That's why it's called Tower Hill. And you go down to the base of this drop-off, this huge cliff, and there's a river kind of in front of you, and there's this little, little stretch of land that's dry. And then at the base of that cliff is this tunnel that they bored, that the guy bored to reach some of the lead that was in the mountain. And they bored straight back into this cliff face. Really, really cool. 
And so as you would understand, I mean, we're on an adventure, and so we need to explore these things, right? And so I tell my kids, we're going to go in there. We're going to check this thing out. And they're like, oh, they're not sure. Okay, Dad. You know, that, but they get it because Dad does this to them all the time. They're used to it. Okay, Dad. And so we, we start walking in. I think I have a picture of this tunnel. But on the outside of that tunnel, you can kind of see, I mean, if you're looking from the, the front of the tunnel, if you look through, yeah, my kids are cute. There you go. There's our dog. Her name is Daisy. Awesome. Okay. Yeah, because some of you are like, oh, you know, okay. I should edit the picture, right? And drop the kids out, whatever, so you can see. But if you look at the tunnel, you cannot see anything. And this picture actually doesn't lie. You, when you stand at the edge of that tunnel, you can't see anything. It is pitch black in there. And so we start walking into the tunnel. And as you would imagine, like all three kids are kind of clumped around me, right? And I kid you not, we're, just, we're not even four or five feet in and where it's starting to get really dark. And now all you can see in front of us is nothing. Like you're feeling like this. Now there's still light coming behind us, so you can see behind us and we're not that far in. But we're talking four or five feet in and all of a sudden I start feeling three people crushing, pinching and grabbing and squeezing. And I'm like... Okay, guys, we're good, we're good. And so I stick my arms out and we walk in. It was like a Bickle mob, right? Bickle amoeba. It was like all four of us within a foot of space. They could not get closer to me. All three of them are just, I'm like shuffling now because I can hardly walk. And we finally get to the end. And it turns out they stuffed a bunch of hay bales in there so you can't go further back. So it doesn't go that far back. But there's nothing in there. We're safe. And then finally they realize, oh, this is cool, Dad. Yeah. I was like, I know. It's, see, we're fine. But that illustrates so perfectly what your soul does when it's not centered on God. You feel scared. You feel worried. You feel vulnerable. You feel like the darkness is just going to crush you. You feel like there's something out there that's after you. And what we need to do is actually what my kids did. You need to run to your heavenly father. You need to cling to him. He can take it. You can pinch his arm and grab a hold and just tight. There you go. Because otherwise you're going to feel weak and vulnerable. Like my kids did. They, there's no way they go into that tunnel if I'm not there. They're just too worried about it, too scared of it. And that was okay. That's partly why I was there. And that's why God is there for your soul, is to give you an anchor that gives you stability and strength and courage. I shared this several months ago, but one of the prayers that I have that dings on my phone, and it's because I need it, is, Lord, help me to be courageous, especially when I'm intimidated. Especially when I'm intimidated. I can be intimidated easily. I admit that. I'm man enough to, to man up to that. All of us are intimidated by something and someone in certain situations. What we need is we need the foundation of God, the center of our soul. All right, third indicator, lack of patience. <laughs> oh man, when my soul is not right, I don't know about you, but how many of you feel like you're just on a hair trigger most of the time? Now, not right now, right? Because we don't, like, if I lose it here, everybody's like, wow, our pastor is terrible, right? 
So I, I, I've got it together here, right? And you guys have it together because you don't want to show your church who you really are, right? And, and so, but, but if you were honest, how many of you would say, if you're being honest, you tend to live on this hair trigger? And I'm not just talking anger. I'm talking maybe it's anger, maybe it's frustration. Maybe it's like, maybe you get worried at the drop of a hat. All of a sudden you hear something, you see something on the news and you're like, oh no. Or you hear about some of the things that happened in Wanakee and you lock 12,000 doors with four bolts that you bought just that day. You're like, we got to get five more, right? Or whatever the case is. And, and, and maybe you're just, your lack of, pa- there's no patience in your life. There's no peace. A lack of patience and a lack of peace really is one of the biggest indicators, guys. This is something that you should not pass over. You need to think about this. If there's a lack of patience, or if there's lots of frustration or anger or just uh, angst in your life, that comes from a soul that is not resting in God. The Israelites demonstrate that this, is, this can happen like that, even though things are okay, it can happen like that. The book of Numbers, chapter 21, in the context, God has just freed them from the uh, slavery in Egypt. And so Moses leads them into the desert, into the wilderness. And so they've been wandering through the desert, the wilderness for a little while now. But it doesn't take long for the Israelites to grow impatient with Moses and God. Okay, listen to what it says. It says, Then the people of Israel sound out, set out from Mount Hor, taking the road to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. But the people grew impatient with the long journey, and they began to speak against God and Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? They complained. There is nothing to eat here and nothing to drink, and we hate this horrible manna. Now what's interesting is, The Israelites, because of their impatience, they're actually lying to themselves and lying to God and to Moses. I don't know if you caught it, but at the end of that, the very last sentence, it says, there is nothing to eat here and nothing to drink. Well, the truth is, if you know the story, God has been providing, miraculously providing water for them to drink. So there is water. There was just no Coke or Pepsi machines, right? That's their problem. I'm sick of the filtered water, God. There's nothing to drink here. Okay, I'm sorry for the nice cold water that I have for you. Right? And then they say there's nothing to eat, but the truth is they say we hate this horrible manna. You know what manna is? We don't either. We don't know what it was. But what God would do is he would, he would actually bring it miraculously to show up every day for the Israelites all to gather as much as they needed to eat. And literally, if you translate the word manna in Hebrew, it means, what is it? So they literally called the food that they're eating, what is it? All right? How many of you would be excited about that? If I stuck something on your plate and you're like, hey, thanks for having us over for dinner. What is it? Right? How many of you are going to be like, mm, dig in. The pastor's serving good stuff, Right? manna. And so the, it's, what is it? And so, so it's the, the problem was not physical hunger. It wasn't that they were starving. It wasn't that they were totally thirsty. God has provided water. God has provided this, what is it for them to eat? Their problem is they want to change the scenery. They're impatient with this life. They're like, God, we're tired of the desert. We're tired of water. We're tired of this, whatever this is, manna. We hate it. 
I'm, I'm tired of sub-zero temperatures. Okay, maybe that's just for you and I. Right? They're just tired of the scenery. They're like, God, my life stinks. What is going on? I would rather be a slave in Egypt. And God says, no, you don't. No, you wouldn't. What was the problem? The problem was not hunger. The problem was not the desert. The problem was not the water. The problem was not the manna. The problem was that the Israelite's soul was not centered and resting and founded upon God who gave them freedom from slavery. Their soul was divided. It was a mess. So we can sometimes lack patience and get really frustrated easily if our soul's not centered. All right, fourth indicator. If our soul is not centered, we are easily thrown, easily thrown, thrown off. And this kind of goes to anger and, and impatience, all that stuff, but it has much deeper implications than that. Uh, in the book, in Soul Keeping, John Ortberg, the author, he writes about a time when he was walking with his wife and another couple, and they were going through a state fair or some kind of event like that. And they came up on one of the booths, you know, these event things that they have, and it was one of those mechanical bulls. Right, And the operator is there, and he's doing what everybody at a carnival or a state fair does. He's like, who can conquer the bull? Come on. Come on, take it on. You can do it. Let's do this. And nobody's taking him up on it because obviously anybody who's... Anybody, I'm just curious. Anybody ever ridden on a mechanical bull here? Well, I want to know. Just a few, okay. Some of you are reluctant, but you're like, yeah, okay. I'm admitting this in church. Like, unbelievable. All right. Now we know who to go to for a good time. All right, it's fine. So John Orberg, I mean, he, he says, okay, so he was walking. Nobody's taking this operator up on this mechanical bull thing. And so he realizes, like, even though he's a middle-aged man, right, he's like, I need to do this. And so he steps out, and he's like, okay, I'll try it. And so he gets on the mechanical bull. And so the operator looks at him, smiles like, man, this is not going to go well. And John looks it back at him, and, and the operator tells him two things. He says, okay, I want you to know a couple things about this mechanical bull before I turn this thing on. One, this bull goes from a level 1 to a level 12. There's like 12 levels that this bull can be, okay? So just know that there, there's an increasing level of intensity, okay? And he said, the second thing is, as this bull gets going, everybody makes the same mistake, they, they pinch their legs together, they hold tighter, and they grab a hold, and they try to just wrap themselves around this thing. And he said, that's the worst thing you can do because this thing is going to be bucking and turning and trying to toss you off. He said, what you need to do is you need to loosen your grip a little bit, loosen your, your tightness of it, and then go with the flow of the bull. You need to make yourself a part of what the bull is doing, right? Those of you that have ridden this, you probably know this. The rest of us, right, we don't know. And so John's like, okay, I got it. Well, the bull starts out slow and, you know, he's kind of like, it's rocking around, it's turning, it's kind of throwing him a little bit, but he's pretty much okay. He's like, I got this, this is good. But no, and then it starts ramping up, right? And it starts turning and bucking a lot more. And then he starts realizing, man, this is really dangerous. And so he starts holding on and pinching his legs together, just like, and then all of a sudden he remembers what the operator said. He's like, no, I need to loosen my grip. I need to, I need to be a part of what the bull is doing. I need to anticipate where it's going and just flow with it. And so he does that. And it starts rocking. It starts spinning. It really starts getting going. And then, and then finally it slows down and he realizes, I conquered the mechanical bull. This is awesome. And so he's still sitting on the bull and he looks at the operator and he kind of gives this smile like, see, a middle-aged man can handle this. 
And the operator looks back at him, knowing what he's thinking. He says, John, that was just level one. (laughs) And the next sentence that John writes in there is awesome. It's one of the best things I've ever read. He said, level two lasted maybe a few seconds. Maybe. (laughs) And he's gone. (laughs) But it brings up this point, a really, really, really good point, and that is this. That you and I, we want level one life. Don't we? We like level one life. I do. That's the, the, the level, just to explain level one life. Level one life is where my children listen, right? They listen to me. They listen, right? Level one life is where my job is going well. Level one life is where, you know, the paycheck comes and maybe the promotion that they're trying to seek to who gets it, I get that, Right? Level one life is where there's nothing wrong with the car, nothing wrong with the house, nothing's leaking, no frozen pipes, like everything's great, the new wood floor looks fantastic, the kids don't even drag dirt in on it. It's amazing. Level one life is where everybody's happy, everything is good, the recliner fits, it's just fantastic, things are good. But there's a problem with that. You know what the problem is, right? Life never stays at level one ever. Does it? It never stays at level one. And so hoping and wishing and desiring level one life is unrealistic. You're just setting yourself up for failure. And it's when life jumps to level three or level seven or those really, really those worst days in life that it jumps to level 12 and it bucks you off and it hurts and it's painful. And it throws you where you didn't think you were going to go. It's at those times where you're going to find out whether or not your soul is centered on God. What I encourage you to do is before life ramps up past level one, before, make sure your soul is centered. Because you don't want to find out that it's not when you're actually on the bowl. Right? So make sure it's centered. Last indicator, identity in the external. A soul that has lost its center focuses on external things for our happiness. Focuses on external things for happiness. So we measure ourselves, we reward ourselves, we we pleasure ourselves with things that are outside of ourselves. And our happiness depends on it. And I've asked this once before, but I want to ask it again today. If I, or not if me, but if everything was taken from you, everything, I mean, you lost your spouse, you lost your children, you lost your house, you lost your cars, you lost your possessions, you lost your smartphone, you lost your health. I I want you to think about this. This is not a fun thought. I get that. Yay, thanks for bringing this one up. I know you're not like excited about that. If you lost everything, that is around you. I want to ask you this question. Who would you be at that point? Now, I'm not asking what would you do. I'm asking who would you be? If I bumped into you and you did not, you were not married 
to the person that you are. You don't have any children. You don't have a house. You don't have cars. You don't have possessions. You don't have a job. You don't have a career. You don't have any of the things that you have right now that tend to give you your identity. My question is, if I came up and asked you, hey, who are you? What would your response be? What would you say? Because most of the time, when somebody asks you who you are or what you do, what is one of our first responses? We, we, we talk about our job. Well, this is what I do. Why? You know why? Because we spend so much time there, we consider ourselves and our identity to be wrapped up in what we do. But that's not the truth. Because God didn't make you an insurance agent. God didn't make you a factory worker. God didn't make you a doctor or a lawyer. God didn't make you a person who works on machines. God didn't make you a snow removal person. God didn't make you that way. That's what you do, but God made you to be something completely deeper and more important and more valuable than that. He made you more, far more valuable than that. And what we need to do is we need to wrap our identity around Jesus. And I know that's a hard thought because let's be honest, losing all those things would be hard. I get that. But our identity and our strength and our comfort and our peace and our joy has to come from God and God alone. In fact, I didn't share this uh, a moment before. I had this thought. I jotted it in, in pen and ink last night as I was praying through and running through this message. But my Aunt Vida, my mom's sister, died a long time ago, decades ago, of a brain tumor, a cancerous brain tumor. And she uh, was one of the smartest people I know. They, they actually have this thing called um, uh, Quiz Bowl, where you learn and memorize like whole sections or books of the Bible, <laughs> literally like almost memorize them. And then you have this team, like this quiz bowl team. You have a team here and a team here, and it's kind of like trivia, right? And, and they call out and they, they throw out questions and you have to not only give the answer, but you have to quote the exact verse and passage of why you're giving that answer. <laughs> yeah, it's intense, right? There's a reason I didn't do that. And, and, and so my, my Aunt Vida, she was on this, one of these quiz bowl teams. And, and what would happen is they'd have the, her team and then this other team, and they'd go through the competition, and she would answer every question. You'd have these little buzzers that they buzz in, and the first person to hit it would answer the question. She'd answer it, she'd get it right, and she'd answer it again. And her team would kill the other team, just crush them, right? And so they had to invent something called the quiz out, which means... Once you answer a certain amount of questions, you can't answer any more for your team. <laughs> they literally invented that because of my Aunt Vida. Brilliant mind. But then after this tumor and after one of her surgeries, it affected her brain so much that she had to then learn how to read again as an adult. And then eventually she passed from this. So what I'm asking you is, it would have been very easy for my Aunt Vita. She was one of the most humble Christ followers that I've ever known. And I only know her, knew her as a, as a child. But you put your identity in something or several things. You do. If you lost this about yourself, you would consider your life done because it's so important to you. 
What I'm saying is, whatever that thing or whatever those things are, that has replaced God in your soul, and you've got to get rid of it. I'm not saying you get rid of it out of your life, although it's, if it's a car or if it's a house or if it's an item or alcohol or something like that that's, that's completely consuming your life, then you should get rid of it. But if it's something that has taken place of God in your soul, you've got to take care of it. In Psalm 39, King David is writing about his short life. And he asks and answers a really important question. This is what he says, verse 7. David writes, And so, Lord, where do I put my hope? My only hope is in you. John Ortberg, in, in the book, he writes this. He says, a, a soul without a center is like a fish that's out of water, but it's right next to the stream. The fish is trying to survive. It's flopping. It's you know, trying to do everything it can to live and to survive. It's doing the best it can. But the problem is that the fish will never thrive and it will not survive unless it actually ends up in the place where it was made to live. A lot of us are going through life like that fish. We've given our soul to something else or someone else. And so we're like a fish that's out of water, trying to find the purpose, trying to find air, trying to breathe, just trying to make it through. And what God invites you to is he invites you to the stream, to your soul. And he says, give me your soul. Let me take care of it for you. And the only one that can do that because you're the caretaker is you. You're the only one, since you're the steward of it, you're the only one that can offer it to God. And make sure it's centered on Jesus. God invites you to experience peace and purpose and power. But the only way to do that is to make sure God is right at the center of everything you are. Let's pray.